0: Thank you, Wes. I love those two, all those hymn selections. The second two, be still my soul and he will f- hold me fast. We speak for, at, from, at time about uh, preaching the gospel to yourself. And those two are wonderful examples of that. Uh, when I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. And it recites the assurance of what Christ has done, uh, that uh, the great cost he paid for us that we not, need not fear looking forward to his return, and be still my soul. The Lord's on your side. Uh, and, and, and as we go through the hardships and challenges of this life, realize who God is and what he's done for us, and that all that's now mysterious will be bright at last. So, with those hymns in mind, uh, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll be reading this evening of four four verses, brief episodes in the history of Israel uh, demonstrating or illustrating faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28 through 31. By faith, Moses, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the Lord's word. I want us to pray before we go into the message. And uh, three choice servants of the Lord I want us to be praying for. First of all, uh, this morning, Pastor Mark told you of Bob Dickey who has heart uh, surgery. We're not real sure exactly what the procedure will be yet, but that will be tomorrow morning. And then also, Paul Washer from Heart Crime Ministries has had heart issues for quite some time. He's going to have bypass surgery tomorrow at 6 o'clock in the morning in North Carolina. So I want to pray for Paul. And then, uh, found out today that uh, dear, our dear brother Conrad Mbewe um, lost his 31 year old son, Mwasa, Mwansa. Uh, he, uh, he had an aneurysm a couple of days ago and had surgery for it and never, never woke up, my understanding. But a godly young man, heavily involved in the ministry of the African Christian um, University and uh, a faithful faithful warrior uh, taken home far too early. So we want to pray for these dear men and their families in these, uh, these days. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the faith that is manifested in these heroes that we are reading of in Hebrews 11. And Lord, as we come to times of trial and sorrow of dear saints, we pray that you would give them such faith to rest in you and to find you to be their strength and their sustenance. We pray for Bob Dickey, Lord, that you would calm his heart and that you'd give the surgeons wisdom to know exactly what procedures need to be done to resolve the issues at hand. And we pray that you would give him a very speedy and complete recovery. We pray also for Paul Washer. Uh, Lord, thank you for his faithful service in ministry and the way he touches lives around the world through Heart Cry Ministries. And we ask that you would uphold our brother that you would cause the surgery to go very well, and that you would give him many, many more years of fruitful service in the kingdom of Christ. Father, we pray also for Conrad, and how we pray, Lord, that you would comfort our brother in this time of great loss and sorrow. You tell us that we need not uh, mourn as those who have no hope, and we have a great hope that his dear son is with you. But Father uh, Conrad and his wife and his daughter-in-law, who's lost her husband now, we we know that their sorrow must be great. The hole that is left in their lives is, is in, immense. So we pray that you would comfort them, that you would draw near to them, and Lord, help uh, their as families, help their church family to surround them with the love and the kindness and the mercy of Christ. Would you show them uh, more and more the reality that you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, the title of the message this evening is Overcoming Faith. Now, that's not... It's, it's overcoming is the description of faith. It's not, we need to somehow overcome faith. That's not what we're saying at all. Uh, but it's faith that trusts God and therefore overcomes the challenges and dangers that we may face in this life. And so, we're going to look at four episodes where the people of God, in each episode, they actually face mortal danger. Their lives were in danger. And yet, <clears throat> by faith, in that sense, they overcame. So, we'll look at Moses, we'll look at the children of Israel, and then we'll also look at Rahab and how they trusted the Lord. They did not see on the front end how is God going to deliver them. They trusted him. uh, And as as, as, uh, Tom Schreiner said, faith came first and deliverance later. And that's a lesson to us that we must walk by faith and not by sight. If we say, God, I won't trust you until I see exactly what you're going to do, we're not going to really trust him at all. So, uh, We must, like them, learn to walk by faith. So four uh, points going with each of the verses, each of the episodes. By faith, Moses and the Israelites kept the Passover. By faith, Moses led the Israelites across the Red Sea. By faith, Israel defeated Jericho. And then finally, by faith, Rahab protected the Hebrew spies and was delivered herself. And the common thread, as I said a moment ago, is in each case, they were facing mortal danger. But they believed God, they did what he instructed them to do, and he delivered them. So, let's look first of all at, by faith, Moses kept the Passover. Verse 28, again we read, uh, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, just... Briefly, the background of this story, you recall, is Moses had been sent by God to go before Pharaoh with a message, the Lord says, let my people go. Now, this wasn't Moses' message. Moses was not issuing a demand of Pharaoh. It was God's messenger. We talked about this last week, that Moses refused to identify with the people of Egypt and enjoy the luxuries of palace life. He identified rather with the people of God. He endured the reproach of Christ. And he did not fear the king's anger, but he went before him to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, you know, when when Moses said, on behalf of the Lord, this is what the Lord says, let my people go, Pharaoh did not respond so well, right? He said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Notice he doesn't say, who are you, Moses? He says, who is Yahweh? He realizes who Moses is speaking for. Now, again, Pharaoh worshiped all these false gods of Egypt. And he had the mistaken notion that his gods were more powerful than the one true God, Yahweh. And so, the next eight chapters in uh, Exodus, we read of plague after plague after plague, God's answer to Pharaoh's challenge. Who is the Lord? I'll show you. And we have one horrific plague, each one more severe than the previous one. Now, Dan pointed out last Sunday when he preached that these plagues corresponded to the false gods of Egypt. As if to say, you think your God of the Nile is powerful? Let me show you. You think this God is powerful? Let me show you. And over and over, Yahweh demonstrated that he is greater than all of the gods of Egypt. He is God, and there is no other so nine times God afflicted with the Egyptians with terrible suffering. Nine times uh, Pharaoh relented and said, "Okay, that's enough. I will let the Hebrews go." And the nine times, as soon as the plague subsided, he hardened his heart, or in, uh, in in a judicial hardening, God hardened his heart, and he refused to let them go. So God sent the tenth plague, which was worse than all the other nine put together. It was the plague of the death angel, or as we read in Hebrews eleven, the destroyer of the firstborn. And again, it's a familiar story. Most of you know this story. On one select night, uh, at midnight, this death angel was going to come through the entire land and kill the firstborn in every household, from the uh, most humble slave girl all the way up to Pharaoh himself, unless he saw blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, the top post uh, of the doorway of the Hebrew homes. So, God had provided the Hebrews with this plan of deliverance. They observed the very first Passover. Each household was to, uh, to slay or slaughter a, a spotless lamb, either a sheep or a goat, and, and cook it for their Passover meal and take blood from that lamb and put it on the sides of the doors, the doorposts, and over the top, the lintel. And when the death angel came by, he would see that and he would pass over that house. In Exodus 12, Verses 12 and 13, we see God revealing this, explaining to Moses what he's going to do. He said, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. It's not just on the Egyptians, on their gods. I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That was God's instruction. And so Moses went and delivered that instruction to the people of Israel. And just as God promised, the death angel came, and he killed the firstborn of every Egyptian household. But the Hebrews, they all heard the promise. They all heard the instructions. They obeyed God's command, and they did what he said, and the death angel, the destroyer, passed over their homes. Their children were spared. That plague broke Pharaoh's resistance. It was like, enough, okay. And the people of Egypt went to the Israelites and begged them, just leave, here's here's some stuff. And they gave them gold and silver and jewels, and uh, it's interesting, where did they get all of the riches that they used to build the tabernacle? Or the golden calf, for that matter, they were slaves. Egypt said, here, plunder us. Just take it and go. It's important we recognize at this point that the Passover lamb prefigures, in the Old Testament, prefigures what we read in the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the one who has given his life, his blood was shed to deliver us from our sins and from the wrath of God, which corresponds to the death angel. And so, we have uh, this, this, this beautiful picture that we have been uh, protected by the blood of Christ and he has passed over us. John, in chapter 129, John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus coming and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, he says, we were, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He's referring to the Passover lamb. And in fact, Paul even calls Christ in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ is our Passover lamb and he has been sacrificed for us. Now, there's, I've spoken with Christians before who say, why don't we still observe the Passover? Why is that not part of our regular church year? Well, the answer is because the Passover was pointing forward to the death of Jesus And now, he himself has instituted for us the Lord's Supper, which points back to his death. And so, the Passover prefigures Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and our deliverance from sin, and the the Lord's table corresponds to the Passover, and it tells us of the body and blood of Christ given for us. So, I want you to consider for a moment the the faith of these Hebrews. Imagine two fathers. This is is actually a little vignette that was written by D.A. Carson hypothetical conversation he says this he says picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown which of course are very Jewish names the day before the first Passover they're having a little discussion in the land of Goshen and Smith says to Brown boy are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight Brown says well God told us what to do through his servant Moses you don't have to be nervous haven't you slaughtered the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood put the blood on the lintel haven't you done that you're all ready to pack to go you're going to eat their whole Passover meal with your family? And Smith says, well, of course, I've done that. But I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary when you think of all the things that have happened around here recently. You know, flies and river turning to blood. It's pretty awful. And now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed. It's all right for you. You, you have three sons. I've only got one, and I love my Charlie. And the angel of death is passing through tonight. I know what God says. I put the blood there. But it's pretty scary, and I'll be glad when this night is over. Well, his friend responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. So that night, the angel, the death angel, swept through the land. Which man lost his son? Neither one. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. It's not how strong and robust your faith is that matters. It's how faithful the God is whom you trust. It is his faithfulness and not simply our faith that is the most important ingredient in this transaction. Faith means that we take God at his word and taking him at his word, we do what he says. We run to Christ, we repent of our sins, and we trust in the Lord Jesus. And even though we may have doubts, even though we may have fears, when I fear my faith may fail he will hold me fast. In spite of lingering guilt or shame, he will hold me fast. Our hope and our trust is not in us. It is entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even our ability to believe him enough, but in his faithfulness to complete that which he has begun. Over and over we've said this, and we need to keep saying it. It's not the size or robustness of our faith. It's the faithfulness of our God. So, we're saved, so, so going back to the story, were they saved by by faith in God or by uh, by uh, the work of putting blood on their post? Well, the death angel only passed over houses where he saw the blood, right? So, some might say, well, you know, it's really both. It's both faith and works. They believed God, so they obeyed God. It was faith and works, and that was their salvation. But the reality is, James tells us, no, that's not... You know, Paul says that we're saved by faith apart from works. And James says, but faith without works is dead. You say you have faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. And so we're not saved by faith and works, we're saved by faith that works. If you believe, hear me out, if you believe your firstborn child will be killed tonight unless you put blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, it doesn't matter how much you say you believe it. If you really believe it, you're going to do it, right? You're going to protect your child. But it's not the act, it's not the work, it's not the obedience, it's the believing that leads you to that obedience that is really what is important. They were not trusting in their works, they were trusting in God who was faithful to keep his promises. So we have, first of all, Moses and the Israelites keeping the Passover by faith. Secondly, by faith, Moses led Israel across the Red Sea. Look again at verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, as on dry land, but the Egyptians when they attempted to do the same, we drowned. You recall, the death angel had hardened Pharaoh's heart over and over, and he does so again. And Pharaoh's like, wait a minute. We've lost this wonderful source of free labor. Uh, Who's going to build our buildings now? Uh, And so, he mounts up 600 chariots, and they head off, chasing after the children of Israel to try to bring them back. Now, God has led the children of Israel all the way to the Red Sea. And they're in this encampment by the Red Sea, and they're rejoicing in the deliverance of God from slavery, and they're thinking everything's fine. And then they see dust in the distance. And they realize, oh, no, Pharaoh is after us. So we can go and plunge ourselves into the sea. That's not going to work. We can't stand against Pharaoh. We are in a whole lot of trouble. And, in fact, panic broke out. And if you go back and read the Exodus account, it's not very uh, favorable, in describing their reaction it tells us that they feared greatly they cried out to the lord which that's good enough so far but then this is what they said to moses exodus 14 11 and 12 they said to moses is it because there are no graves in egypt that you've taken us out away to die in the wilderness <laughs> not only they resort to unbelief but sarcasm i mean how sad is that What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Their response, I would argue, was really faithless. One minute they're rejoicing at the deliverance of God because things are favorable. The next minute all panic is breaking out and they abandoned any vestige of trust in the Lord. Well, Moses responds he said to the people fear not stand firm and see the salvation of the lord which he will work for you today for the egyptians whom you see today you will never see again the lord will fight for you you have only to be silent so moses reminds them god's in this he led you here he didn't lead you out here to die he led you to get to the other side now i want you to see here this is important god's faithfulness was not diminished by their lack of faith when i fear my faith will fail he will hold me fast He graciously overlooked their unbelief, their disbelief, in fact. He parted the Red Sea. He led the Hebrews across as on dry land. He still drowned Pharaoh and all of his armies. And so, he brought about a great deliverance for the Israelite people. Now, I want you to imagine again, once again, uh, two Israelite, Uh, fathers talking with one another and Pharaoh and his armies are pressing in and panic is ensuing and then you see the waters of the Red Sea part and it's like two great walls, this canyon passing through the water. On one hand, there may be a a sense of great relief but on the other, it's, well, wait a minute. What if we get out in the middle and and the water comes tumbling down on us? And you can imagine a million what ifs. What if this? What if that? And all these what ifs that would undercut our faith. It still took faith for them to follow Moses. It took faith for them to believe Yahweh and go where he told them to go. Now, it wasn't their faith that parted the Red Sea. It doesn't say that here. Their faith did not part the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea. But their faith enabled them to go where the Lord told them to go. And it wasn't because their faith was particularly strong. It wasn't but it was because God is ever faithful. The third example, the third illustration of faith that we find here in Exodus, or Hebrews 11 is in verse 30, where faith, by faith Israel defeats Jericho. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. Now, it's important we understand that Jericho actually posed a genuine threat to the people of God. It was five miles across the Jordan River right at the very entrance into Palestine. So, if they're going to go into the promised land and take it as God commanded, they have to deal with Jericho. It was a nearly impregnable fortress. Forty years earlier when the Lord sent, or when when Moses sent spies into the the land to, to scout out the land, they came back and said, we were like grasshoppers to them. And the first people they saw were those of Jericho. And so they were, they were awed and they were intimidated by the show of power that was there. It was an imposing fortress. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given Jericho into your hands. All Israel has to do is march around the city. For six days, all of your soldiers, first the seven priests, each having a ram's horn, a trumpet, And then they lead the way with the Ark of the Covenant behind them. And then all the soldiers march all the way around the city six times silently. And on the seventh day, they march around seven times. And after they march around seven times, the seven priests blow the trumpets nice and loud, and then all the soldiers let out this loud shout. And the Lord said, when you do that, the walls will fall flat. Now, Think how bizarre that plan of, of, of attack sounds. Uh, I remember as a kid, uh, some of you might know this song. My dad would always sing this, this or frequently sing this, the spiritual Joshua fit the battle of Jericho when the walls come a-tumbling down. Some of y'all may remember that. Now, we know that's how the story ended. We know that's what the Lord said he would do, and he did it. But imagine that you're an Israelite soldier, and you've been marching around day three, day four, and you're going, why are we doing this? What is this accomplishing? See, they'd seen God deliver other enemies into their hands already, but they had to go out and they had to fight. They uh, They had to take sword in hand and go to battle with the Amorites, the kings of the Amorites, and they defeated them. And they end up inhabiting their cities for much of the time they had to wait until the next generation was able to enter into the promised land. But they had to fight those battles. The Lord gave them the victory, but they had to fight those battles. Victory's not being wasn't handed to them. But here in Jericho, the Lord says, I'm going to hand you this victory. You just be silent. I'll take care of it until it's time to shout. But even though this battle plan defied all human reason, they obeyed by faith and we know that God did exactly what he promised he would do. On the seventh day the army marched around seven times, the priests blew the trumpets, the men shouted a great shout, the walls of the city fell flat. The Jews then the Jewish soldiers then stormed the city and put to the sword everyone who lived there except one family, one household, Rahab and her household and her father's household. And that's the fourth point of this text this evening verse 31, by faith, Rahab protected the Hebrew spies. We read, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, again, Joshua, before they crossed over the Jordan River, Joshua sent a couple of spies in. And he said, go go check out the land, especially the city of Jericho. So, they entered the city, and it tells us they lodged in the home of this prostitute, named Rahab. And you might say, well, why did they do that? And the answer is, I don't know. Bible doesn't tell us. We don't need to guess. But they secretly entered the city, but the king somehow found out they were there. Word got to the king. There are Jewish spies amongst us, and they're at the home of Rahab. And so, she ushered them up to the roof, and she hid them under some flax uh, sheaves. And when the soldiers came and said, where are the spies? We know they're here. She said, well, you know, they were here. I wasn't exactly sure who they were, but when the city gates were getting ready to close, they took off. But if you hurry, you might catch them. And so in doing that, she saved their lives. She spared them that they might fulfill their mission. Now, there's an ethical question here that many people like to ask. Is it okay that Rahab told a lie? Some say, well, she was commended for her faith, but she was not commended for her lie. Uh, just like the Hebrew midwives when Pharaoh said, uh, if, a, if a baby boy is born, you're to kill it. And they came and they said to Pharaoh, I'm sorry, but, but the women are vigorous and they, 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 they have their babies before we get there. We need to be careful about simplistic answers to complex questions. You know, the Bible says, putting aside falsehood, speak the truth to one another or to your neighbor for your members of one another. Well, does this apply in this particular situation she's not bearing false witness against anybody she's seeking to preserve their lives and you need to think about this if they had come in and said we're going to arrest these men and she had defended them with a sword and said over my dead body would she have been justified in resorting to violence to protect their lives most of us would say well yeah of course so i can kill someone who wants to do harm to someone in my house but i can't lie to them That seems a little odd. See, war is a complicated thing. There are things that happen in wartime that are considered heroic that would be criminal other times. You don't go killing people. But in war, there's a reason and a necessity to do so. In the same way, in war, there are times when it's actually right and wise and even heroic to deceive the enemy. Now, that's a complicated issue, and some people you might be blowing your minds. And kids, I don't want you to go home and say to your mom and dad, Pastor Jamie said it's okay for me to lie to you. If you're at war and you're lying to protect righteousness, that's a different subject. But if you're simply lying to cover up your own sin or to get your own way, absolutely not. Of course not. Never ever is it right. But in these, these military conflict type settings, things are different, and we have to understand that. So, Rahab was commanded to expose those whom God had sent, and that command was not a righteous command. And so, she did not owe them the answer that they were looking for. She was commanded to betray the servants of the Lord, and she chose rather to protect them, even at tremendous risk of her own life and of her own household. Because had she been found out, she probably would have been put to death. So, her lie is that act of faith. that was part of her act of faith and again if that sounds confusing I'll be happy to talk to you about it later Uh, it's never right to lie to pursue sinful ends absolutely never ever ever but when we're talking about situations of opposing evil uh, we don't owe them the truth if a bad man if a a terrible person comes to your house uh, I've heard this illustration many times Uh, where's your wife I want to kill her Uh, if she's in the back room it would be lying to say well she's not even here So, you can't lie to them. And the person who said this said, uh, but you could say, hey, what's that over there? And the guy turns around and they knock the gun out of his hand. No, wait a minute. When you say, what's that over there? You just lie to him. Or you could pull a gun out and you shoot him dead because you're protecting your wife. You can shoot him dead, but you can't deceive him? Are you kidding me? So, it's not quite as simple as sometimes people like to make it. If the cause is just. It's legitimate for those spies to go undercover and to deceive their enemy. If they walked out into the, into the middle of the street and said, we're here on a mission from God to spy out your land, that wouldn't have lasted very long. It wouldn't have gone very well. All right? But I want you to pay attention. After the soldiers have left, what does Rahab say to the Hebrew spies? Because it's very important. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 2, if you would. Joshua chapter 2. She goes back up to the roof, and she she speaks to these men in verse 9. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. That's verse 8. And verse 9, she said to the men, I know the Lord Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. who's never been taught a single word of Scripture, knows Yahweh, your God, is God in the heavens and on the earth, and none can stand before him. Her faith was greater than that of the Israelites in many places, amazingly. Now, what does she say? She says, I know that Yahweh's given you the land. We know that. The word's gotten out there's implicit in that statement that Yahweh is the one true God. He's real. Secondly, she says, uh, fear has gripped the inhabitants of Jericho because we heard the mighty things that God has done on your behalf, and he's going to deliver, he's delivered all these others to you, and we recognize that we're next. And so again, she affirms that Yahweh is the God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. And then, if you read the subsequent verses, you see that she's asking them, please, would you deal kind with, kindly with me? I have helped you. Now, would you help me? Would you spare me and my father's household when you attack the city? You know, it's interesting. The rest of the city of Jericho had a very different response, didn't they? They knew what she knew. They knew that the people of God were coming and that they were going to be in a world of hurt. And so, they, they, uh, they boarded up their walls. They, they, they sought to uh, make the fortress as impregnable as they possibly could, as if that could somehow help. And they rejected and resisted the God who is the God of the heaven above and the earth below, who has all power in heaven and earth, and who is determined to deliver his people. So instead of turning to Yahweh, instead of uh, seeking his mercy, instead of welcoming the people and saying, how can we make your entry into the land more smooth?" Can we be part of you? They bolted the doors. They tried to resist. And it really exposes the utter folly of unbelief. How many people hear the gospel? They know the truth. They know uh, that, that those who uh, reject the Lord are under his judgment. They know if you sow to the flesh from the flesh, you will reap corruption. You know that. You hear it. And yet somehow you think, I can skate along unscathed. I can beat the, game, beat the system. I can go my own way and avoid the consequences. I can sow to the wind and pray for a crop failure. How foolish that is. Because whatever God says he's going to do, he's going to do that. And so, for these in Jericho, resistance is pointless. It's sheer folly to resist. And yet, that's exactly what they did. And again, that just reveals the futility and the foolishness of unbelief. But Rahab recognized that folly. She recognized who God is, what he's going to do, and she cast her lot with the people of God and, and, and asked for mercy. And God was faithful to Rahab. When the walls fell and the soldiers stormed the city, those two spies came back to her house and they gathered her and her father's household up and they brought them out to the people of God. And they actually included them in the Jewish community. And incredibly, that's not the end of the story. Rahab marries a Jewish man. Now, ordinarily, they're not supposed to intermarry with pagans, but she's not a pagan anymore. She has put her faith in the one true God. She has cast her lot with the people of God, and now she has joined the Jewish community and even is a wife and a mother. And God graciously gives her birth or allows her to give birth, to a baby boy named Boaz. You know the name Boaz. He married Ruth, who was also a foreigner, a Moabitess widow who comes to join the people of God with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz married Ruth, and they had a son, and he had a son, and he had a son. They were great-grandparents to King David in the line of Messiah, And if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you read that genealogy of the Lord Jesus, you'll see two women's names, Ruth, the Moabitess, and Rahab, the prostitute. So here we have this pagan Canaanite woman, a prostitute no less. And not only was she spared from certain death with her pagan countrymen, she is welcomed into the people of God and is given a family. Among them. I'm, I, I'm quite certain she, it's clear there that she becomes a worshiper of God and is even honored to be included in the very lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing testimony to the grace and the faithfulness of God. So here we have four deadly situations, four demonstrations of faith, four miraculous deliverances. The Hebrews were spared. Being killed by the death angel. And they were delivered from Pharaoh's army through the Red Sea by faith. And the Hebrew army dele- defeated this powerful enemy, Jericho, by faith. Rahab was allowed to join the Hebrews. And her life was spared also by faith. So as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table in just a moment, I want to make a few final applications. First of all, um In many cases in Hebrews 11, really all the cases in Hebrews 11, the writer doesn't mention the failures of these Old Testament saints. And there were many. And we can read in the Old Testament accounts, and we see uh, the, the, the panic and the unbelief, the disbelief of the Jews before they crossed the Red Sea. And yet, the writer commends their faith. And that's a great encouragement because you and I, we can focus on our failures, and they are many. We have an accuser who constantly accuses us, smites our consciences, and he doesn't have to make stuff up. You know, it's amazing. Satan will tempt you and seduce you and tell you it's no big deal, you can, you know, you can sin now and repent later, you know, just one more time. And all these, all these devices he uses, and it's okay, and nobody will find out. And all these reasons to lower your fences, and then you finally compromise, you give in, and then he begins to pummel you with accusations. What kind of Christian do you think you are? You're probably not even a Christian. And he just goes on and on and on. He's the accuser. And it can wear us out. What we see here in Hebrews 11 is that God is rich in mercy. He commends the faith of faltering saints because they trusted a faithful God who's rich in mercy, who's abundant in his steadfast love. That's not a license to be careless about holiness. When we get to chapter 12, uh, we'll read in verse 14, Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is essential to Christian life. It's an essential fruit of genuine faith but our faith is not going to be perfect in this life and that's a great encouragement to trust in the Lord and not in our own ability the great lesson here is not the size of our faith the the vitality or the robustness of our faith it's the faithfulness of God who keeps his promises just think over your last just the last week how'd you do How, how was your week does it remind you that I really need God's grace every single day? I need to remind myself, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Faithful to forgive, yes, just because he paid for it. In fact, in 1 John 2, 2, it says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus, the righteous, who is the propitiation of our sins. He's just because he's paid for them. He doesn't plead a technicality before the bar of God's justice. He pleads his own shed blood and his perfect righteousness. The third thing I want you to see about these four groups of people, they walked by faith, not by sight. Faith is conviction of things not seen. And they didn't see how God was going to deliver them. They simply did the next thing that God told them to do. And as Schreiner said, faith came first, then the deliverance. So we walk by faith, not by sight. And then finally, just remember, as we approach the table in a moment, this Lord's table is the New Testament fulfillment of the Passover. The bread is a symbol of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ who was broken for us. The couple is is a symbol of his blood that was shed for us. The blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorpost and on the lintel, his blood covers us. Shields us from the wrath of God purifies us that we are called righteous before our God. Pastor Mark mentioned this morning that some have have used the term for justification as just as if I never sinned, but the gospel is better than that. It's really just as if I'd always been perfectly righteous, which only Jesus has. I I love the acronym GRACE, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, except I like to change the R. It's God's righteousness at Christ's expense.